0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is John West. John's an assistant professor in English and comparative literary studies at the University of Warwick and he's also the author of a magnificent new book, John Dryden and Enthusiasm, Literature, Religion and Politics in Restoration England, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. John, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you on the show. Before we begin talking about this very impressive new book, Dryden and Enthusiasm, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh yeah, of course. So I'm—I currently work in the English department at the University of Warwick. Um, where I've sort of been associated with Warwick for a very long time, on and off. I was an undergraduate there. Um, I also did my PhD there, um, and then I came back to a, a job there a couple of years ago. So it's been—it's you know, been nice to kind of. Um, see this book into publication at the same time that I kind of returned to the place where I've, a lot of the ideas for it kind of flourished, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm currently trying to kind of develop a couple of new big projects around particularly sort of civil war and interregnum literature. Um, one on literature and succession in the forties and fifties. Um, which sort of springs out of a project I was involved with um, in the University of Exeter called the Stuart Successions Project. Um, and the other project which is it is very, very early stages and which may not come to anything is kind of about land and ritual and um, and literature in the civil wars, which may expand into something bigger, it may come to nothing. That's a very, very early, early stage of um, stage of my thinking at the moment. Um yeah, so that's that's where I'm at at the moment, really.
0: That's great, John. Well, you've written this really extraordinary book, Dryden and Enthusiasm, which, as you've just told us, um, develops work which you began as a postgraduate student in, in, in Warwick. What's the background to the book? What drew you to Dryden initially? He would be quite an unfashionable subject in some ways, wouldn't
1: he? Yeah, he is a little unfashionable. Um, and in a way, I suppose I came to Dryden... A little bit by accident. Um so my <clears throat> my I'd done some master's work, for example, on ideas of inspired uh, the, the theology of the of the divine of, of holy of the Holy Spirit and ideas of inspired poetics um in dissenting writers, particularly Lucy Hutchinson. Um and I'd intended to do a, a kind of doctoral thesis on kind of inspired poetics in Civil Wars and in the Restoration in particular. The reason why I ended up going to Dryden early on was because I thought I wanted to get the other side of the coin as it were I wanted to get um, a view of the the kind of mainstream ideas of what writing should be like in the Restoration. What I expected to get when I went to Dryden's essays was a defence of the, uh, the importance of rationality in literature and in poetry the importance of rhyme as a kind of form of order, or the rhyming couplet as a form of kind of poetic order. Um, And what I found in Dryden was that there are defences of rhyme, there are of course parts of his literary criticism where he's interested in the idea that political order can be reflected in sort of poetic order. But what I also found was a writer who was terribly, terribly interested in this idea of enthusiasm. and who seemed very interested in the idea that literature came from somewhere supernatural. Um, and that seemed to me very odd and paradoxical. It sort of, con- it went against the foundation of what I was, I thought I was going to be doing as a PhD in a way. Uh, what I thought I was going to be doing was thinking about oppositional poetics, sort of dissenting writers and how they used um, ideas of spiritual inspiration as a kind of way of contesting um The court or the dominance of the political order of the restoration and the new regime. Uh, So to find Dryden, a writer who is kind of at the center of the restored regime, he's the poet laureate after 1668, he's historiographer royal after 1671. Um, To find this writer using this idea of enthusiasm so positively when it is actually a very contested and in some ways a very dangerous word and a very dangerous idea, seemed to me to be a very rich uh, sort of tension to explore. So I ended up in the first term of my PhD sort of taking uh, sort of much to the, the, I I don't know if it was to the amusement or amazement of my supervisors taking the leap and saying well, actually I, I think maybe there's something to do on Dryden here rather than what I thought I was going to be doing. And much to their credit, my, my supervisors just went with me. They, they allowed me to do it. Um, and that, in a way, is how I got into Dryden. Uh, so a, a little bit by accident. Um, but he, it, it, it is strange sort of working in Dryden because, as you say, he is something of an unfashionable writer um, at the moment. And I suppose has been for a little while. Um, you know, In the middle of the 20th century, in literary criticism, he was kind of the dominant Writer of restoration studies, but I think since maybe since the eighties, the perception of Dryden as a as a conservative figure, as something of a crony, you know, he's he's sort of sucking up to to the court, sucking up to uh, those in power, has led people to be rather dismissive of his work, um, and certainly that, that you know since there's been sort of a greater it, interest in things like the literature of republicanism or the literature of religious dissent and nonconformity and radical writing uh in the civil wars and the, the restoration uh dryden's fortunes have somewhat declined because people have just as- associated him with the sort of with the court and with with sort of conservatism, i suppose um i guess one thing that's emerged through um my doctoral work and it's still there in the book is a desire to sort of say, well Dryden's yes, Dryden's conservatism is just a little bit more complex than perhaps it's been assumed uh, by some writers, by some critics. Um, I think the challenge for me in writing the thesis, and also in particular in turning it into the book, was trying to trying to raise what is a single author monograph or a single author thesis into something that's actually relevant, and could be interesting to people in other areas, historians of religion or politics or literary critics who are more interested in Milton, for example. You know, I was trying to write a book and and indeed trying to write a thesis that, yes, it was about Dryden, but it was about trying to say, well, what Dryden writes about is of relevance to a a far broader kind of academic community. Um, So I was trying to kind of pitch the thesis but also particularly pitch the book. It's sort of these this dual audience in a way. Specialist in Dryden, of course, but trying to make Dryden more relevant to others as well. Um, and that was kind of a challenge, I think. That was the big challenge for me, particularly in turning it into a book and going through the process of pitching it to a publisher. Um I think trying to say, well, yeah, writing about this unfashionable of restoration literature is going to be important and here are the reasons why it's going to be important. And I suppose my pitch was that by trying to untangle the way in which Dryden thinks about enthusiasm, we maybe get a more complex and perhaps more interesting picture of the relationship between literary culture and political and religious allegiance after the Civil Wars. We start to realise that um, the rhetoric that different writers use uh, can on occasion be quite opposed, so a writer of a particular political persuasion or religious persuasion uses a particular kind of style or a particular kind of rhetoric against a writer of an opposed position, but that more often than not what one finds I think is sort of rhetoric sort of um being very fluid and combining and interacting with one another in unexpected ways. Um, and that's largely what the book is about, I think, by focusing in on dryden enthusiasm. The,
0: the book succeeds in, in absolutely all of those areas that you've just described, John, doesn't it? It's an incredibly smart book. It's an agenda-setting book. And if Dryden has been on up to this point, I think we're going to see a lot of work responding to to your Uh, proposal in Dryden and Enthusiasm, which really complicates this subject and, as you say, reaches out both into the earlier period, into the later period, and into ancillary disciplines and domains of study to to, to make a big argument that we're really going to have to think carefully about. The, the, The ambiguity that you identify in Dryden in relation to Enthusiasm, I suppose in part Relates to the development of literary history through this period as we move through these very tumultuous, complicated political revolutions in the middle and later 17th century. But it also relates to his own biography, doesn't it?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, he, he came from a sort of Puritan family uh, in Northamptonshire um, and, of course, worked for the um, protectorate um, in the probably the late 1650s. Uh, So he's, even though he becomes this kind of writer of the restored royalist regime after 1660, he's a writer who's before that is coming from these kind of backgrounds of Puritanism and non-monarchical political regimes. And of course he wrote that um, very famous elegy for Oliver Cromwell, The Heroic Stanzas, which was printed in 1659. Um exactly the wrong moment to print that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um of course his his contemporary Andrew Marvell also wrote a, a um analogy for Cromwell, which was slated to be printed in the same volume. Um
0: and he and had the sense to withdraw it, it, didn't he?
1: Yeah, but he had he chose to withdraw it. And I think a lot of Marvell scholars now think that Marvell was being very canny and sort of anticipating where things were going, realised that actually to have a if a Cromwell out in print, what, one year before the royal, the, 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 you know, a possible royalist restoration was not going to be the cleverest thing to do. Um, whereas Dryden just seemed to go for it, um, <laughs> along with, um, Waller, Edmund Waller and Thomas Spratt, who were the other two, um, poets in that volume. Uh, so yeah, it was exactly the wrong moment of doing it. So that meant that by the time you get to 1660, he has to do this vol fast. Although he's not the only writer in 1660 who has to do that, of course. Um, There are a great many writers who write panegyrics for Charles II on his return to England and his restoration to the throne, um, who had previously worked for the Cromwellian Protectorate, who had written for the Cromwellian Protectorate in some way, shape or form. Um, Edmund Waller is the other big example there. Um, So there are a lot of writers in 1660 Dryden among them who are sort of seriously considering how you actually perform. This sudden change of allegiance, I suppose. Um, yeah, so Dryden's in, part uh, of the reason why Dryden is interesting is because, yeah, he comes from these kind of backgrounds, which seem to, I guess, mean that he's open up, uh, open as a writer to understanding and trying to uh, understand the perspective of. People who do not necessarily share his views, I think. Um, that's not to say that he is a writer who's necessarily always tolerant of opposing, uh, political or religious views or indeed views about literature. But I think it is to say that Dryden's a writer who seems, um, he wants to see things from a multitude of perspectives. Um, and you can in a way see that in some of his later poetry, actually. He's, he's, he often, in his religious poetry, sort of sets up the kind of arguments between different voices, uh, so he has to kind of inhabit the voice of somebody who he may not actually agree with, so he becomes a writer who's very good at articulating ideas which he may may not necessarily be his own, but he's very interested in trying to get a, as full a picture as possible of, of of different situations, and I think that probably comes from. This kind of experience of coming from a Puritan background, working for the working for Cromwell, and then suddenly being a royalist writer, and being the kind of royalist um, writer, and becoming poet laureate in sixteen sixty
0: eight. Um, now, p- part of that shift from the Civil War period, the Republic period, and into the Restoration period, is a shift in the cultural value of enthusiasm, or religious fanaticism, or extravagance, or claims to inspiration. And yet, as Dryden becomes this much more conservative figure um, after 1660, uh, he he retains this interest and enthusiasm in different kinds of ways. Why was enthusiasm so poorly regarded in Restoration England, John? And and why might Dryden have wanted to think more carefully about it?
1: Um, I think, I guess the main reason I think Enthusiasm was so poorly regarded in restoration England was because it was an idea and a word that had become associated with um, the kind of radical religious sects that had emerged in the sixteen forties and sixteen fifties. Um, you're thinking here about um, I, I guess groups like the the Ranters groups like the fifth monarchists, groups like the Quakers, all of whom in their you know, obviously all having very different kinds of the- theologies, um, all of whom, though, seemed to draw on this idea that they were being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was inhabiting them, that they were, um, and, and that the Spirit was allowing them to speak God's word in the present, um, and As such, those groups obviously became very politically radical as well. They felt that, um, I guess, yeah, that they were, um, kind of opposed to the existing regimes. They were, you know, prophesying the end of time. They were anticipating the downfall of, you know, earthly political forms and their replacement by, you know, the kingdom of Christ and so on. Um, and I think enthusiasm in the 1650s there were some writers who wrote treatises that um, basically tried to say that all of this was mistaken inspiration. And that's important to remember. Enthusiasm is a word which in one sense just means the mistaken apprehension that you are being divinely inspired. Uh, and that's certainly how writers like Merrick Sorbonne and um, Henry Moore write about enthusiasm in the middle of the 1650s in their treatises on the subject. They sort of see it as a, as a, as a kind of, as an illness, they do medicalize it a lot. They say, well, people who are claiming to be divinely inspired are essentially that they're unwell, they're mentally unwell. Um, that's the kind of discourse which is going on in the 1650s. And I think that does carry on into the 1660s. So enthusiasm carries on as this kind of word which is associated with those political, um, those radical religious and radical political uh, figures of the the Republican and Commonwealth era. Um, I think there's kind of a a sort of darker side to that though, that it's not just a word which is used to kind of almost satirize or to um undermine. It it's a word which covers up a, a sort of a um a quite serious concern about what the impact of enthusiasm might be on the state. I think for a lot of people in the Restoration. At least in the early restoration anyway, the fear that that kind of radical religious energy, if you like, might carry on into the uh, restoration was, was partly down to the idea that if people believe that they are divinely inspired, then it means that they, they might not be, able, they might not adhere to earthly law. So it's a kind of antinomian idea, which is, is circling around the idea of enthusiasm. Um. And, you know, that there are things that happen in the early 1660s, which gives some people, I guess, would, would, I guess, have given some people cause to think that this was still a problem. You know, you have the the uprising by, um, you know, Venice uprising in 1661. So a group of kind of, a kind of of fifth monarchists, basically, who, who try to topple the new restored regime um, and fail miserably. And many of them are executed. Um, but i think something like that in the early 1660s is proved to a lot of people that you know that this kind of radical religious sectarianism and the belief in being divinely inspired or the misapprehension of being inspired was still going to be a big political problem and that in a sense the you know the, the sort of what emerges as a kind of antipathy to religious dissent in the 1660s and that sort of succession of very um very unpleasant acts that passed in the 1660s against religious nonconformists, five mile acts and uh, conventicle acts and so on. I guess part of that might be a sense that, you know, religious dissent, even though it's very multifarious and multifaceted, uh, still harbours this kind of radical, um, radical energy from the 1650s that could be dangerous to to what was, at the end of the day, still a fairly fragile um, regime uh, in the restored monarchy.
0: So the the new regime is really trying to consolidate its power, isn't it, after 1661 in that raft of pieces of legislation that's known as the Clarendon Code. Then in the mid-1660s, this series of disasters, plague, fire, Second Dutch War with the humiliation that that involved, um, especially for uh, the, the Navy uh, around the south-east coast of England. And Dryden responds to this in his poem, Annas Mirabilis. How does how does that poem relate his interest and enthusiasm to this sense of disturbance within the political realm?
1: Well, Annas Mirabilis is, in one way, an attempt by Dryden to take some of these kind of national disasters fire, war in particular, and I suppose, I suppose to use a 20, 20, 21st century phrase, it, an attempt to spin them, an attempt to make them um, rather less negative and disastrous for the restored monarchy than they may have been seen by others. Um, part of the way he does this, I guess, is by turning, uh, say, for example, the description of the fire that you have in Anna's Mirabilis. so. so and Mirabus is a very poem, it's quite a lengthy poem. It's about 1200, 1300 lines long. It's a description of the, the confrontation with the Dutch. Um, and it's also a description towards the end of the Great Fire of London in 1666. Um, but what Dryden has rather, um, astonishingly is this idea of Charles II being, being the father of his people and helping the nation to Um, fight this, um, you know, natural disaster in the fire and also kind of helping to, um, helping the nation to kind of rebuild after it. And part of what Dryden does, how Dryden does this, I suppose, is by making a very clear link between Charles II and, and God. Um, so there are descriptions of divine providence entering, almost kind of like special providence, kind of entering directly into history in order to um, put out the fire, in order to save England from destruction. And this is seen in the poem partly as emerging because Charles II prays. He prays to God and says, please help the nation, God uh, um, obliges. So what Dryden sets up is this kind of, um, this union between the restored monarchy and divine providence. Which in this, in his description of the fire helps the nation, A, to overcome the disaster of the fire itself, but also to start to rebuild after it. Uh, some of the sections, I suppose, that describe the fire are, um, they are kind of interesting to read as examples of enthusiastic style, if you like. They are, um, they're full of this kind of very bright, Uh, effervescent images of the fire, the way it dances, the way it destroys everything in its path, the way it um, is kind of irrepressible. Um, But it's also interesting to see it as a kind of enthusiastic style or enthusiastic poetics because of the way it describes God, because of the way it describes Providence not as this kind of background thing which is um, sort of structuring the universe but as a uh, providence as something which enters into history directly, enters into history and sorts things out and, you know, puts out the fire. Um, so it, it's fascinating because there may be sort of competing ideas of how, what enthusiasm can do in that poem. It's fascinating in some of Dryden's descriptions of the fire. He actually describes the fire as dancing. Uh, And within the fire he describes the ghosts of um, executed nonconformists and executed radicals delighting in the fire and the way it's destroying London and delighting in the way that this will facilitate an interpretation of the restored monarchy as essentially corrupt and debauched and that this is God um, punishing the nation. But he pits against that this idea that actually God is trying to save the nation, and it is through Charles's own intervention into, into the fray that God does actually come and save things. So it's an interesting poem because it sort of pits two ideas of providence against one another: uh, a kind of radical nonconformist idea of providence, which says God must punish the nation because it has gone astray from its godly path during the 1650s, and another more royalist strain of providence, which is about. God directly intervening to try and preserve and secure um, the restored royalist regime. Um, so you can see, I think, it, it in it, almost in kind of miniature, that kind of confrontation between um, a kind of nonconformist or even radical idea of um, the relationship between the world and, and God and a more royalist, a more conservative idea of that relationship and how that shapes a lot of what Dryden does with enthusiasm later on in his career, actually.
0: One of the really interesting things that, that I noticed as a theme in your book, John, is not only that Dryden is hinting at or sometimes overtly articulating his interest in enthusiasm, but also that many of his readers attribute that enthusiasm to his work as well. Um, Absalom and Hickelfeld, another one of his great political poems dealing with the exclusion crisis, you show us how the three um, prefatory poems which are eventually attached to that work all hail it as uh, um, an almost inspired piece of work. And then in your conclusion, you you take us past Trident's life and show us how the Whig party as it consolidates a a, a poetics of its own, begins to draw strength and guidance from the works of Dryden, which many of its polemicists too believe uh, are almost inspired or an, a, a representation of an enthusiastic um, enterprise. What's going on in the reception of Dryden, both among his royalist peers, but also his Whig descendants?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was something that I I really wanted to draw out in the book, actually, that the way in which Dryden's work Or the difference between the way in which Dryden's work was apparently read by a lot of people in his own time and in the early 18th century and how it's been read in our own time. So in our own time, I think people have tended, not not exclusively, but there has been a predominant reading of Dryden as a writer of conservatism, a writer of religious and political order, and a writer whose style tends to reflect those preoccupations with order. Uh, in 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 the state and in the church and so on and yet in what i find interesting about his, his restoration readers is how often they seem to attribute to his writing a kind of inspired quality or they seem to attack it because it seems enthusiastic <laughs> um so i mean you mentioned the the uh, prefatory poems to Absalom and Akitophel. So Absalom and Akitophel is Dryden's, I suppose Dryden's, one of Dryden's most famous poems published towards the back end of 1681. It's a response to the Popish plot and the uh, succession crisis or exclusion crisis of the period of 1678 to around 1681. Um, but the, the prefatory poems to that publication all seem in some way, shape or form to be saying that this is a kind of inspired work. In some respects one, I think as a literary critic, you need to sort of take for a literary historian, one needs to take that as a, with a little bit of a pinch of salt. You know, you never quite know how far these um, when people say, you know, oh, this seems like an inspired piece of writing, how far they're just kind of using a almost a, a rhetoric of flattery, you know, um, whether they actually mean it or not, I, I don't know. Um, but it is interesting that Within the context of that publication, that they are trying to hail Absalom the Bell as this inspired poem, when actually the poem itself really makes quite a strong attack against religious dissent and makes this very strong connection between you know religious dissenters from the late 1670s and the early 1680s and the religious radicals of the 1650s and kind of says where well, he describes them as being the old enthusiastic breed. So he's making this kind of very a link. So it's interesting that there's again that sort of tension between Dryden's defenders saying, well, he is an inspired writer, and Dryden himself saying, well, I need to attack certain groups of people because they are enthusiastic. Um, And it's interesting also how that, um, that part of Dryden's, I guess, polemical rhetoric, his attack on the early Whigs of the early 1680s and their nonconformist allies, some of the nonconformist allies in the early 1680s, um, as enthusiasts, does get picked up by his Whig opponents in the early 1680s, and they kind of throw the accusation right back at him. Um, So you get this really fascinating um, sequence of poems that are printed from late 1681 to into 1682. There are essentially responses to and rewrites of Absalom and Chizophel. Um and a great many of those Whig writers uh, amongst them Elkanah Settle, Samuel Portage, um and possibly the um, uh, possibly Henry Kerr, the famous um, newspaper journalist and, and, and publicist of them seem to portray dryden in those works as a kind of irrational in some cases insane poet who believes that he is being inspired by some kind of force to write what he writes Uh, and they're they're attacking him kind of in the same terms that dryden attacks nonconformists they're saying that he's an enthusiastic writer Um, so there's this kind of odd doubleness to it again. There are writers who defend Dryden and celebrate Dryden by saying he's inspired and he's enthusiastic and there are writers who attack him for it. By the time you get to the early 18th century, um, and as you, you said, the, the Whig party is trying to consolidate um, itself politically, but also kind of culturally and literarily, I suppose. So you start to have this emergence of Um, ideas of what a kind of Whig literary culture might look like, and within that there's a particular emphasis on the importance of the sublime, um, of the poetic sublime. So you have a a Whig poetic theorist like John Dennis, for example, who writes a lot of, um, several very, very interesting treatises at the turn of the century, uh, 1700, 1701, 1702, that are about trying to in a sense, rehabilitates enthusiasm. Uh, he's trying to take enthusiasm and strip away all the kind of negative associations of uh, the misapprehension of divine inspiration and its association with political or religious radicalism and rehabilitate enthusiasm as something that is about, in a sense, the highest quality of poetry, which is linked to sublimity. And when he does that, he's often drawing or driving, I find. He's often picking up ideas from Dryden's essays from the 1670s and running with them and developing them. Or in some cases, he's actually explicitly um, praising Dryden. Um, Dennis and Dryden actually knew one another. They were correspondents. So they, um, and Dryden had written to Dennis in the 1690s, taught, uh, telling him that he, he should try and perfect the art of the Pindaric Ode, for example. Um, but So you can see in Dennis's work, in particular, later on in the work of the Earl of Shaftesbury, Shaftesbury doesn't i think uh, um, explicitly mention Dryden quite as much as Dennis does, but you can again see a lot of in a lot of the ideas that Shaftesbury is working through in the the essays that eventually form um, the characteristics that are published in seventeen eleven um, ideas about the sublime in literature the sublime in poetry, and the importance of enthusiasm as a kind of um to a kind of sociable civilized society, um you can again see those roots in Dryden. Um so you have Whig writers at the turn of the century who are either explicitly saying Dryden is actually somebody who we are looking up to. I mean fascinatingly Elizabeth Singer Rowe is one of those poets who in the sixteen nineties um says you know lots of very nice things about Dryden even though She's writing these, you know, very kind of militaristic poems about the, the, the um, Williamite campaigns. Um, you also get writers like Shasper who maybe don't allude quite so much to Dryden himself, but who are definitely picking up his ideas, I think. Um, so part of my challenge in the book, I suppose, was trying to untangle that sort of, that, that, that sort of, uh, the complexity around enthusiasm that could be used as this kind of this negative smear word, if you like, that in a sense, people from different political and religious persuasions could throw back and forth at one another. Um, and also how it turns by the 1690s and into the early 18th century into something that people are trying to rehabilitate um, in a project, which is about understanding what poetry should be and what po- role poetry has in society, I suppose.
0: Well, John, there's no doubt your book unpicks that theme with care and, and, and insight and undoubtedly sets a new agenda in literary historical studies for the end of the 17th century, and as you just suggested, with implications that go quite far into the 18th century and perhaps beyond that too. Um, Dryden and Enthusiasm, Literature, Religion and Politics and Restoration England, just published by Oxford University Press. Um, certainly the book that has changed my mind about its subject a really powerful, compelling argument uh, with far-reaching implications John, we've taken up a lot of your time today but thank you for coming onto the show and talking to us about this work Thank you very much for having me, it's been a pleasure And thanks to everyone else for listening in today I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies a channel of the New Books Network podcast